Hey everyone, welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer. We're recording on Tuesday, February 6th, 2024. There's a whole bunch of books in the classical Jewish canon that have the word midrash in the title. So it would be forgivable if you assumed that a conversation like the one we're going to have today about midrash was about one of those books. But confusingly and delightfully, the word midrash does not merely describe a genre of literature. It actually tries to capture an activity or a process that expands way beyond the bounds of even those books that are explicitly called books of midrash. Midrash loosely means explication or exposition, but it actually tries to capture something more like seeking or inquiring. It's a means of taking a text and using various inquisitive methods like using other texts as points of reference in order to try to extract deeper meanings from a text than what's obvious or plain. It's oftentimes a playful activity. So we try to tease out coded meanings from loaded language. But most of all, I think Midrash is about layers because when it's done right, Midrash exposes layers of meaning within a text but also adds new layers of meaning atop an existing text. Jewish tradition always wanted two things out of Torah at the same time. It wanted the original Torah to be the total repository of all of God's revealed truth, but it also wanted us to be the kinds of seekers who would be finding new ways of thinking about God's Torah all throughout the remainder of time. Midrash is basically the essential instrument in our hands in that paradoxical project. The first doers of Midrash, I don't know what the right verb is, the first Midrashists of biblical books were the biblical authors themselves. There's countless examples of how later biblical books riff off of earlier ones, teasing out what they think those books were supposed to mean, and sometimes completely reversing the earlier meaning with a kind of implicit, explicit commentary. The best example, I think, is the book of Ruth, which is a kind of commentary on the lawlessness and in-betweenness of the era described in the earlier book of Judges, and it thickens that story by layering this one on top of that one. But the biggest and boldest interpretive move that the book of Ruth makes is that it takes an explicit Deuteronomic law, the multi-generational prohibition against marrying an Ammonite or a Moabite, and it flips it on its head. Ruth, the book's protagonist, is a Moabite, and the heroic ending of the book tells us not only that an Israelite married her, but that she ultimately became the ancestor of our greatest king, King David. If you read the book of Ruth as Midrash, it's winking at us. You understood the book of Deuteronomy one way, and now I'm going to show you how you misunderstood it, or maybe how that very meaning was meant to evolve over time. And when you finally get to the layers of actual Midrash, the books called like Ruth Rabbah, the books properly external to the Bible, books that make no claim to be originally biblical, the rabbinic Midrash on Ruth goes even further. Not only was Ruth a Moabite who married an Israelite, she actually becomes the paradigmatic example for conversion in the Jewish tradition. Midrash does something amazing. It starts inside and it moves outside. And over time, Midrash moves from inside the biblical tradition to become books and books, Midrash on Midrash. And yet over time, Midrash also sometimes becomes self-conscious and may be gradually less radical than its earlier strata. Throughout Jewish history, as the rabbis moved further off the page from commentaries on the book itself to commentaries about commentaries, some ways, rabbinic commentary on Bible became more conservative about its claims, 
maybe sometimes more interested in sustaining a culture of commentary than in forcing us to radically rethink the text itself. That is until the last couple of decades. In the past few years, we've seen an explosion of new forms of modern midrash, dramatic forms and ways of rethinking and remaking the biblical text to serve new audiences, but I think more importantly, to take into account the interpretive genius of the kinds of scholars who might never have been granted access to the midrashic process in earlier eras of Jewish history. If midrash is a verb, then in theory, all of us who stood at Sinai, who inherited the revelation, should be able to do it. But canons start open and get closed quickly, and Midrash ossifies and it calcifies to become a fixed noun faster than we think. Even today, there's plenty of purists who hold a very clear distinction between old Midrash, which they consider to be good, and new Midrash, which they don't like. <laughs> Sometimes this is fair, maybe there should be some amount of rules for how Midrash is supposed to operate, and yeah, there's got to be some difference between when someone's doing the rigorous work of using text to expound on text versus when someone's just coming along as a novice and rewriting a story to serve their own ideological objectives. But sometimes the distinctions between new Midrash and old Midrash are unfair, and they misrepresent the dynamism of what Midrash was supposed to enable in us. The power of making the text of the Torah come alive for generations and generations to come, depending on the boldness of good readers and writers to find meanings in the text that seem new, but may in fact have been buried there all along waiting for us to find it. The Talmud in Tractate Menachot famously depicts Moses traveling in time to the back of the study hall where Rabbi Akiva is teaching Torah a thousand of years into the future, and Rabbi Akiva is expounding on every jot and tittle in the Torah adducing meaning from not just words, but from punctuation. And Moses becomes fatigued and may be frustrated. How is it possible that Rabbi Akiva seems to be making stuff up? How is it possible that he, Moses, knows less Torah than Rabbi Akiva when he, Moses, stood at Sinai face to face with God? It's only when Rabbi Akiva acknowledges that everything he knows was once embedded in this tradition at the site of the original revelation, that all of this was, in some weird way, Torah from Moses at Sinai. Only then Moses can see his place in the story. The same Torah, alive for a new generation, with new eyes to see its majesty. At the cutting edge of the most radical work in the evolution of Midrash today is an absolutely audacious interpretive project called Torata an effort to rewrite the Torah by regendering all of its characters. This is harder than it looks. <laughs> One does not merely press Control F on the Torah, locate masculine names and declensions. There's an immense amount of creative work trying to represent the kinds of ideas that those names were meant to carry, which can't simply be regendered by adding or subtracting a hey or a yud. Finding new ways to express the Torah's ideas there are significant plot consequences. The Midrashic authors trying to help us make sure we can study and understand the Torah rather than trying to make it into something totally new. After all, if your objective was to write something new, don't start with an old book. Most of all, I think, the hard work lies in making Torata something that helps us see or understand or love the Torah for what it is and even for where it falls short the kind of stuff that becomes newly possible when you apply this kind of creative lens. I'm joined today by the two leaders of the Torah Tap Project. Yael Kanarek is an artist from New York. 
Tamar Biala is an author and teacher in Jerusalem. As I understand it, Yael initiated the project, was later joined by Tamar to edit the second draft of Torah Ta. Tamar, of course, is not new to Midrash. She's the leader of the Dirshuni project, also a moment in the history of Midrash, which consists of Midrashic commentaries authored by women. The Torah Ta project is growing with more and more biblical books being translated beyond the original five books, but also now expanding to include more commentaries on the translated Bible, Midrash on Midrash, as well as really interesting cultural outputs. In the next couple of weeks, the Torah Project will be debuting and releasing a first album in which musicians took Torah Ta language and set some of its verses to song. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. Thank you both for coming on the show. And I guess I'll start with you, Yael. We'll start in the beginning, as one does. What was the problem that you saw yourself wanting to solve by, by getting involved in this kind of work? Thank you, Ida. Um, thanks for having us on the show. I also, I just want to make a comment that you, you codified it as Midrash, so we're going to talk about it through that lens, but there are multiple lenses also. Sure. For that, we find it as wide as Torato his Torah, or Torah is commonly known. I studied Kabbalah for over 10 years, and it was actually in the studies of Kabbalah that I was reintroduced to the presence of the Nukba, the feminine, in a much more significant way than I ever met it in Torah. And also the study of Kabbalah taught me to read Torah as a book that talks about the inner powers. Not so much stories about, you know, people walking on the land, but each character represents a quality within me and they are in a particular dynamics. And that dynamic has the quality of tikkun. That's how I was introduced to it. But over the years, I don't know why I gravitated towards that. For years, I didn't understand anything that was spoken to me. I heard thousands of hours, but I couldn't stop. It was very strange. <laughs> they use Hebrew in a completely different way. So I don't know why I wanted that, but I really, really wanted that. So I had the fuel to take it in. And over the years, what happens is that a kind of inner construction emerges through which I was able to understand the world in an applicable way. That was the great surprise. That was the first time that I felt, okay, there is actually an applicable wisdom in this. Somebody figured out something. I wanted that. But I always felt that as a woman, I'm on the outskirts of where the center of dynamic happens, where the direct energy is working through. So after about 10 years, I reached an impasse. I felt that I could not progress anymore in this spiritual quest because I was just not close enough to the source of the text in the way it's constructed. So I was uh, very frustrated. And I looked around and I couldn't find any books that codified Lashon Isha, women's tongue in the sacred in a direct way. I did come across a book that was found with Gnostic text in Egypt called Thunder Perfect Mind. It was the first time that I actually read text that speaks in sacred terms from the perspective of a woman deity. And I was like, wow, okay, all right. That's the texture of this, but how do I find it in the language that is so deeply embedded in me from a very young age? So then I was like, how do you write a book like that? How is it written? You mm -hmm. know, what, what are the mechanisms? What's the purpose of it? What drives it? All these kind of really abstract meta questions that 
just started to kind of bubble up. So then I just thought to myself, what if we just, you know, swap the genders? How would that feel? So I went to Genesis and I just went to the Genesis 127. This is the moment that we actually, in our minds, create the God. Once you read it, there is a construction, a relationship that is formed that wasn't there before. And I did it in a more rudimentary way that what we have now since Tamar joined me, we really deepened it. But and Elohim created the Chava in her image and the image of Elohim. She created her female and male. She created them. And I looked up and the ceiling did not fall on my head. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I was really stunned by the difference of how that felt. Yeah. It's like I felt the volume of the text at like volume 10 versus volume two. Suddenly I knew something about the Elohim that I never knew because now it's likeness after image. I'm, this is an intimacy there. There's a kind of a, a direct relationship. There's an agency there that I never, ever experienced. I could tell you something about the Elohim because I'm like her. That was never, ever available to me. Mm-hmm. So I was naturally, I was like, what else is there? You know, if this is so delicious, yeah. what else is there? So it took four years and I, I finished the Chumash thanks to um, COVID. And then not too long after that, I met Tamar, my spiritual yeah. shidduch. Well, I'll come to Tamar in a second, but I want to stay with you for one other question, which is, you know, you resisted the term of Midrash and I want to unpack why. And I guess the reason why it strikes me as Midrash is because the way you started your story is the way that interpreters of the Bible have always started their work, which is, I'm seeking something that represents personal and spiritual meaning. I go towards the source, the repository, and I don't quite find it there. And that, to me, is like the birth of the Midrashic instinct. I know that there's a truth here. I know there's something I need. If I can't find it directly in the text, I'm going to find it indirectly in the text. Or I will tell you, as the rabbis oftentimes do with classical Midrash, Al-Tikri, one of my favorite lines. Don't read that word to sound like this. Make it sound like this, and then it's a totally different word, and now I got whatever what I needed. So that's what it felt Midrashic about it. But tell me why, why you bristled a little bit about the rendering of this work as Midrashic. Uh, I think that for me, I just I needed a core text that I can perceive as a source text. You know, I don't know how to find it. So I think, and also the other thing that is happening in Torah which we discovered over time is that it opens our thought in a unique way that is not possible through Toto. It goes beyond reading. It's if I have two spiritual legs, which I never had before, it builds me. At least that's how I understand Midrash is a commentary on that the the spring where the well kind of springs from is in Torah. That's our spiritual spring even though, you know, it's perfectly fine with me that people understand it as Midrash or people understand it as a a thought experiment. However, you know, you need to come to it. But the source from where I come from is wanting to get closer to that. And that's why I personally experience it. And it's all about experience. It's not an intellectual exercise. This is very, very visceral. That said, Torah just opened a door. So I don't even necessarily think of Torah as a sealed book. I think of it as a door that just opened. What is Torah 2.0? I don't know. This is the first step that we understand yeah. to do. So hopefully 
we start to see the Le Cholisha library grow beyond that. And who knows where that takes us. So Tamar, when you came into this project, actually using the metaphor I used at the beginning as like a midrash writer who's coming into the text itself. So I'm curious what you saw in this project as something that made you want to latch on to and participate in and help it grow. Yes. So I also don't see Torahtai as a midrash. Um, (laughs) So I spent 20 years in a row trying to justify the place of the Bible in my world. Justified hearing it again and again in shul, talking about it in, uh, you know, on the Shabbos table, teaching my daughters that this is a holy scripture, that this is our sacred text. And the Midrash helped me justify, or I tried to find uh, strategies to see the others as if sides that are hidden there that say moral things when it actually doesn't say a moral thing. And uh, I still am investing a lot of energy in Midrash. I'm working now on uh, new volumes of Dilshuni, both in English and in Hebrew. This is a strategy that keeps the traditional Bible in the center. But Torah adds another Bible to the shelf of the Jewish Bibles. And it's a different original core text. I've been writing Midrashim and Torata recently, so I know the difference. The Bible itself is given already. So Torata, we're changing the genders and it changes everything, but we don't change the stories or the laws. And we have to struggle with many dilemmas <laughs> that we have in the original Torah. But the experience is totally different. As Yael said, I don't need Ezer Kenegdo. I'm not the helper of the male when he stands directly in front of God. Now it's me in front of a goddess. And weird enough, sometimes it's very heavy. You know, as a religious woman, I was frustrated most of my life. How come I'm not being ordered to do this and that? And now after we ended uh, many books after the Chamisha Chum Torah, after the five books of Moshe, but when we finished the first round of five books of Moshe, I was exhausted to be in the main place uh, in front of God. God chases humanity or the Jewish people, the Bnot Tisraela, the Tisraela, the daughters of Tisraela, nonstop. This is very exhausting. This is very heavy. It was a weird experience. But I have to say, you know, honestly, the challenges that Torah raises are different from the set that I grew up on. Of course, there are always the moral dilemmas about racism or power structures, whatever. But it's also Torata deals with, it imagines a non-patriarchal world that I've never experienced. Even if I write Midrashim from the Torah, it will be from my patriarchal experience. But Torata is non-patriarchal. It's very weird. And I'm trying to feel a little bit what it means, how it feels in the body, in the mind. I can tell you that after the few first days working with Yael, when I was walking downstairs on Derech Hebron, it's a main road under our building, and I was, you know, crossing the street and I felt that it's like I just learned how to walk Mm. in the world. 
I was a different person. You know, years of therapy didn't do what few hours in Torata, dwelling in Torata can do to a woman. It's you in the center and it's legitimate. And the goddess is similar to you and wants you. So mm. this is a new Torah, really. Yeah, no, it Torah. is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and I love that you said the word weird, because for you to admit the weirdness is also empathetic to your readers, or maybe to our listeners, who on one hand you said it felt weird, and then you felt, in essence, liberated by it or transformed by it. Can you talk about the weirdness a little bit? About what, about the strangeness or the uncomfortableness that you both experience as writers and readers of what you're doing and what you have heard or anticipate hearing from people outside of the project? Yes. So the weirdness, I can describe, Yael is usually doing the writing and we're struggling with every letter, not just every word. And we're having very fire-like conversations. Mm -hmm. And one day... She didn't have time and I had to work uh, on a certain book by myself. It was a chapter, it was it's that I'm very attached to, um, it's a certain nevoah. And I was working and that was the first time I, with, in my bare hands, was rewriting the Bible. That's a great sin <laughs> for a girl like me <laughs> that grew up like me. I was physically shivering, even though I did it with Yael many, many times before. So first of all, it's the, it's the physical experience of uh, doing something dangerous or I understand the weight of what I'm doing. The shift is huge. Then there are new feelings that the content is creating in me to see myself in a different way than I used to see myself, to see my body. I'll just give one example. Yael loves in Torata uh, uh, the stories and, you know, especially Genesis, of course, with all the Kabbalistic weight that has there. I actually love the book of Vatikra. It used to be Leviticus. Now it's the Kohanot. It's the priestesses that run the Kodesh, the sanctity. And what defines Kodesh, uh, we understand it more by what defines Tum'ah defilement. So there are several things that cause defilement, we all know, but the main one of them is the woman's blood and the man's sperm. Um, these things cause tum'ah. And we walk with these feelings all our lives. And it has different uh, halachic weight because uh, semen's uh, defilement was lost uh, over the years, it was canceled, but women's bleeding still has its weight. And it has a lot of subconscious guilt or heavy feelings uh, that comes with it. And Torata changes everything. The nida, the women's bleeding, has no halachic status anymore. It's men's bleeding that <laughs> unable them to come close. When If they have urine infection and they're bleeding, they can't sacrifice, etc. And since the sperm doesn't play a role anymore, it's the women's, something that has to do with her sexuality, that has the weight that the semen had before. So I won't go deeper into this, but 
we had to think a lot how to replace the semen in something that has to be in the women's body. And I will just invite anyone who hears the podcast to get into our website, betorata.org. The Torata has an H in it in the end. And I have a blog there that describes those depths that we find as we're working and how we invented new term that has to do with women's sexuality that makes them come closer or further from the Kodesh. And it explains what Kodesh is in a new way too. Yeah. Um, yeah, coming to you, I mean, you, the very way in which you framed the opening described almost, I don't think you use this exact phrase, but almost a search for self and a search for comfort. So I don't know that you would use the term the weirdness, but I'm curious whether you've had moments of, I don't know, being turned around by this project or how you've, in, and you've been visibly identified with this project for a number of years now, especially in the New York area, the kinds of reactions that you found it elicited in others. Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to say something about the weirdness that actually comes back to Torato. The second chapter has the creation of the woman out of the sight of the man. In Torata, it, the man is coming out of the woman. And once you read that, suddenly Torato starts to look very weird because how that ever turned around. Mm -hmm. And also we have in Torato creation stories that don't have a birth. But in Torata, we can understand the third chapter in the garden as a celestial womb where the serpentess, Anichasha, is a metaphor for the umbilical cord. And that creates a completely different reading for the whole story. Now we're talking about the gestation and birth, and the birth is inevitable. And how is that separation happen? So we get to talk about other things. So it's really interesting how Torata starts to change the reading of Torato as well. It becomes a very dynamic experience of the text regarding um, critique or pushback. So I think the pushback, at least for me, has, has kind of, I would say, maybe four different categories. I just want to say in general that we got a lot less pushback so far than what sure. I initially anticipated, which is amazing to us. Yeah, um, amazing. So I got a few uh, random emails from, I think, Orthodox men hiding behind fake emails, and they mm -hmm. used kind of magical language to uh, reprimand me. And so that's expected. I got one very angry email from an Israeli feminist because Torta is not a feminist book, but what it does do is that it has a feminist desired effect on us. And that's a very strange thing. So we have that kind of feedback. I did get pushback from non-binary rabbinic students who felt that why are we doing the binary all over again? Why not go straight to gender neutral form? So in Hebrew, it's not possible because the language is completely binary. I am aware of the non-binary Hebrew project, but when I was trying to apply it, the, the language just fell apart. So maybe that's something for the future in Hebrew. You know, in English, I was able to create an example of what a gender neutral form would look like by translating the meanings of the names. So, Avraham or Emrama, high parent, took their child, they will laugh to sacrifice them. So now we have, you know, the structure mm -hmm. of the story, gender fluid, but 
again, this is a project for someone else to pick up and run with, which I hope will happen. So that was pushback. And I got an interesting pushback. And I think I hear that. And that's from an Israeli woman who was in her 70s. And for her, centering the story on women felt like a security concern. And the only way I understand that was maybe because, you know, I was raised in Israel and went to the secular public school system. And the way we studied Tanakh was very, very much part of the Zionist philosophy. And I feel that part of its purpose was to prove our right to the land. So by changing that, and now also the geography changes. So Mitzrayim becomes Mitzerot and Kenan becomes Kenona suddenly that ground has kind of fell from under her. So these are the kind of four category, more or less, of pushback that I got. Yeah. And Tamar, would you like to expand on that? Yeah, most people, again, because we've been teaching the last three years, every Sunday, many hundreds of people arrived to the classes over the years, really from all over the world. So most people that are coming enjoyed tremendously and give a wonderful, wonderful feedback. But I'll mention two bad stories. Mm. Uh, one was by um, an Orthodox woman, psychologist actually, that studied with me a certain course in a women's yeshiva in Jerusalem last year. I didn't want to say what I'm doing. Eventually she understood what I'm doing. And her first response was, I want to kill you now. Oh my God. Yeah, but thank, thank God she didn't do that. But there was another response by a friend of mine in shul that joined the class we did for Purim two years ago by Zoom. We read uh, the scroll of Mordechai. Fascinating, fascinating scroll. And in the middle of reading it, she stopped the lesson of everyone. And she said, I can't go on doing it. You have ruined my uh, like defense mechanism that I had. She knew all along that the Bible is very patriarchal. But she found this illusionary way, I don't know, to come to shul every Shabbos and not to see what she sees and to think of other things. And, you know, all the strategies that we have in order not to be hurt not to hurt so much um, facing the fact that our tradition is so patriarchal. So she said that while studying Torota, it like tore that little shawl that she had over her heart, and now she'll have to face it all again. Yeah, I was going to ask about the non-binary critique because, you know, to me, less from a standpoint of like who's being included and excluded, but more from the kind of ideological perspective that Torata essentially preserves one of the ultimate, you know, modern critiques of what Hebrew has left with us, which is the inability to get outside of the binary framework of gender. But you addressed that a little bit, and I I guess what you're saying is you're going to leave to someone else to come along and maybe de-gender the Torah. Is that right? Yes, uh, but I have a little more to add to this. So yeah. once we build in ourselves the points of reference and the way of thinking that Torah offers, we can bring the two sides together to what we call Torah Shlema. And this is really the bigger vision here. So once we're bringing together, there are several things that become possible. One, attention becomes on the action and less the characters, because now the characters can shift in your mind. So the action becomes center. The other thing that becomes possible is we can take characters from Torah and from Torah and build new families. So we can have 
Emrahama, who was Abraham, and Sarah from Torato, and now they're the mothers of the nation, or Avraham and Sal, and they're the fathers of the nation. And we can start seeing the stories from that perspective. Also, Torata and Torato, for example, in the case of the laws, expand or cancel each other. So that becomes like another tool of way of looking at the stories. How do they affirm or tear apart certain aspects mm -hmm. of this? So we basically gain many more tools of looking at the story. I feel that without building Torata, women's lens, what happens if we just go to gender neutral is we are expanding the familiar, which is the current construction. We know what it is. So without Torata, we're missing a bookend. We don't know where it ends because there's just not enough points of reference in our mind and our heart to work with. And that's the yeah. reason that we can't not take that particular step. I think it's absolutely essential. Yeah. So let me ask a technical question about one of the translation choices that you make. And I really do encourage our listeners not just to read Torah Tah, but to read it aloud. It makes a very big difference to read it aloud and to hear it aloud. One basic question, when you translate the primary created human, you use the word chova as opposed to chava. Can you talk about that a little bit? That was surprising to me because it felt like one of those places where you might simply have swapped the names, but you chose to modify the punctuation of the name of Chava. Can you talk about that choice? Sure. So, okay, let me just backtrack. In most of the cases, we regender the name itself. So Yitzchak yeah. becomes Titzchak, Yaakov, Taakov. There are two cases where we swap the characters. One is the creation stories because Adam to Adama just fell apart, basically. Uh, Adama means soil. And in the story of Megillat Mordechai, where we swap the characters. Uh, but we know that the punctuation arrived uh, by the Messorah in the 8th century. And we also know that it's a form of commentary. So when we looked at the name Chava, its origin, even though the Torah itself does a midrash on it, its origin is unclear. The meaning of the name Chava is unclear. But when we moved from Chava to Chova, suddenly that really opens up enormous amount of meaning. So basically what Chova means is she is experiencing or Chova Dea means she is opinionating. So now we have the first creation as an entity that can feel and can express. Maybe it's not even a woman yet. Maybe it's just that capacity. And maybe that's the capacity that is in likeness after image the capacity to feel, and the capacity to express. Tamar, what's another example that our listeners might be able to identify with as a kind of surprising decision that emerged from the process of trying to do what, what Yael, I heard you doing, which is you can't simply swap this word for this word. You have to really probe what the consequences are for language more generally, what is colloquially understood as the language, but also to help our learners and readers of this tradition really understand what it's trying to do. So maybe, Tamar, you have any other kind of examples that were surprising to you throughout this process? So I never noticed, even though for the last 54 years I read Torah every year, I never noticed that there are hundreds and hundreds of names of places of people in the Chumash. So we had to change each and every name and we had to understand what's the meaning of the name and then to change it to the feminine version of it. 
So that was an experience. And I will just give a few examples. One is for the name of the country that is what Israel now, and it used to be Knaan. So we just added the hey in the end that usually Kamat's hey turns many names into female. And we played with it and we changed it to Ken or Na. She answers yes. Yes, she answers. This is a country that the daughters of Tisraela, it's their dream to get there and dwell there. And this is a place that you say yes to life. Over the years when we taught it, people said that it was extremely meaningful for them. Mm -hmm. And it's just a little present and the way it wasn't even, you know, regendering a person. I do want to relate to the, something we spoke before about the binary genders of yep. the Bible and how limiting it is. So the big surprise for me, working on uh, regendering the people, and we also regendered the animals, is that all the women gained characteristics and behaviors of men. It's not a feminist book the way I studied women's studies and we studied uh, women's ethics, women's psychology, women's theology. I worked for years on women's theology. It's not a feminist book that way. It doesn't offer us a different way to run the world. It just teaches you that if you had the power that men had, you may behave like this. And this is very challenging for every woman. It's terrifying to see herself as the one who is raping, is uh, conquering, has to decide who to keep alive and who not. So we asked ourselves a lot, is this a feminist action? <laughs> what are we doing? And I personally think that this is the next stage of feminism. See ourselves not only as victims and not to try to do everything in a different way, which is still important, but also to have enough confidence to face our human side that may behave aggressively when we will have power in our hands, as we see you know, in the politics of these days, the women in, the women in yeah. Israel. So let me ask you one last question, which is, the next era of this work moved from being text on a page to manifesting Torah in the world. And that has included public readings in ritual context. So I don't think, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think there's a, a scroll yet. I saw a rabbi post on Facebook that they have Torah to fill in. So there are scribes who are taking Torah and turning it into the same ritual use. And then in the next couple of weeks at Central Synagogue, there's a, a concert where you're releasing these songs into the world. I can tell you on a personal level, I was in the home of Rabbi Angela Buckdahl, and she played us a song from the album, Osa Shalom. And it was, it felt like simultaneously <laughs> totally normal and natural, and then also like wild, like exciting in a way that text comes alive when you've heard it differently. I'm curious for both of you, what has changed for you about this project as the work that you've done has moved from a project of the mind to a project of ritual? My heart is not, uh, I'm not there yet uh, yeah. on the ritual level, but I can say that I, I had a shift in me moving from working on Torah 
the endless, 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 endless hours that we were working on Torata into moving and writing Midrashim on Torata. That was a shift in me. Mm-hmm. When I realized that it's the Torata is, I don't know whether to say sacred enough, but uh, it's strong enough to have a lively fruit. It has enough secrets to blow your mind through a midrash, revealing it through a midrash. So this is what I'm doing in life. And I found mm-hmm. myself there too. I found it there too. Uh, I'm an artist. That's what I do. And I work in various media and I work, I've been working for the last 25 years in the area of language and form. So for me, it's very natural to want to see the text find its way into different forms. We also, as humans, we receive uh, information in different ways. So some of us are more sensitive to text. Some of us are moved by music. Some of us are moved by image. And I feel that for Torata to move into the world, it needs to move through all these channels. So for me, it's very, very natural to explore it in this way. In tandem with the concert, we're also opening an exhibition of visual midrashim that I've created. These are visual works of text that are going to be on view for three months at Central. And after the concert, we're going to do a reception and it will be the official opening of that exhibition. I just want to say that recently I started doing experiments with AI imaging generation to create images, visual images for Torata. And I do have images of now an older woman sending the dove from the ark. And we're looking at it and it's really challenging our perception of how we see, you know, uh, older women and putting that image in the story of Nuha is really quite striking. So We're using all the tools that are available to us to manifest the text and allow people to enter in it or allow it to enter them. It's really exciting. Well, thank you all so much for listening to our show this week and special thanks to our guests this week, Yael Kenarek and Tamar Biala. Identity Crisis is produced by Tessa Zitter. Our executive producer is Maytel Friedman. This episode was produced with assistance from Serena Shohet and Gabrielle Feinstone and edited by Gareth Hobbs at Silver Sound NYC with music provided by SoCalled. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website typically a week after an episode airs. You can sponsor an episode of the show. We're looking for ideas of what you can cover in future episodes. So if you want to speak to us about that sponsorship, or if you have a topic you want to hear about or comments on this one, you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. For more from the Shalom Hartman Institute about what's unfolding right now, you can sign up for our newsletter in the show notes. You can subscribe to this podcast everywhere podcasts are available. We'll see you next week. And thanks for listening.